Morning. My name's Tori. If you haven't met me, I'm the lead pastor of Terra Nova Troy. And isn't it great when siblings can get together, right? Here we are. And it's great when siblings can get together, even when one of the siblings told itself last week to get here before the other sibling gets here and take all the parking spots to make sure. I listened to the service. Good one. Um, but here we are. But really, thank you for, for hosting us. Congratulations on, on 10 years. And uh, we just, we're really grateful for you. And we work better together as a network of churches. Uh, we do better with the work of church planting. We do better with collaborating uh, with sermon series and preview notes and retreats and all of that. We're, we're simply better together. And thank you for, uh, for letting us worship with you this morning as our gym, not quite as nice as this building, uh, is, being, is being worked on. So we're going to continue to go through the letter slash sermon of Hebrews together. And today we are in chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. So before Pastor Daniel brings the message, would you stand with me as I read God's word? Hebrews 1, 5 through 14. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of a brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? You may be seated. And for those of you who don't know me very well, I also recently started sitting during the message. I was sharing that with Tori the other day. He said, how rabbinic of you. And I just agreed to, to that as being the motivation and rationale. What I didn't tell him is it's also because my back feels much better for the rest of the day if I'm not standing for however long it is that I'm preaching. So, uh, But in all seriousness, it's been uh, just a way for us to kind of create a conversational uh, environment in here. Um, and so that's, that's the reason that I'm, I'm sitting. Uh, I know it's been said uh, by Pastor Matt, by Pastor Tori. I just want to acknowledge, too, how awesome it is, how encouraging it is to have our Troy family um, with us here today, especially uh, on the heels of or after we celebrated our 10-year anniversary yesterday. I know this is speaking from a human point of view, but truly, apart from 
the men and women of Terra Nova and Troy, Saratoga wouldn't be here. It just, it's just that simple. God, of course, could have planted a, a, a church, a Terra Nova-like church, but really um, our roots and uh, so much of the reason why we're here today is because of Terra Nova and Troy. Uh, many of the people who are sitting in this room had integral roles to play in those early days. Uh, from the pastors who are here, um, uh, the marshals, for example, Matt and Jen and their family were really, in a sense, missionaries for that first year where they weren't sure if Saratoga was going to be their long-term home. In fact, they were pretty certain it wasn't, but they wanted to kind of help give us that boost and just made this their church for a year before they ended up back in Troy. And so we're just so thankful. And so it's really meaningful to have you guys here with us today to worship, especially after our 10-year celebration. Uh, one of the things that we've started to do is uh, to pray for the Big C Church, the, the, the other churches around us on a Sunday morning before we get into the Word together. Um, because we should, but honestly, it's as much to kind of get us out of thinking that, you know, um, the ivory tower mentality of a local church even, that we are all that exists and is, and, um, and to start growing our hearts for God's people everywhere. And so we just felt it appropriate to spend time interceding on behalf of Terra Nova and Troy today. And I'd asked the pastors earlier this week, what can we be praying for? And uh, coincidentally or not, um, I think it was the day I actually asked uh, Rob and the other pastors, he sent me a video link that was just actually made that day, Tori told me. Uh, so I'm, I'm drawing from that in some of what I'll share with you and we'll pray for. Uh, but a couple things. Number one, it's on their heart to grow in unity. It's on your heart, Terra Nova Troy, to grow in unity, particularly when it comes to your mission and your vision for how to make more and better disciples. Uh, and then the other thing, and this was kind of featured in that video sent to your congregation, is just you guys are looking for a, a, a new space to, to call your own and to make your own uh, to better enable you to carry out uh, the vision and the mission that God has given you. And um, one of the things that was mentioned was that you guys put an offer on a building in North Troy, and so we can be praying this morning that it's the Lord's will. He would swing that door wide open, and then very practically just help when it comes to um, communicating in the transition. Transitions in church world are, um, are difficult to begin with, and we as pastors and leaders have to remember we always have to go out of our way to over-communicate things, and so there's a call for help in the areas of administration and communication and connections, and a lot of that help is going to come from uh, the people gifted that way within your congregation. So would you just join me for the next moment in lifting these things up to the Lord in prayer? Father, we come to you this morning as the one who has the answers to all the things that we are looking for and who is the great provider for all the needs that we have. And, and you know the needs that we don't even ask for and you know the answers to the questions we've not even asked of you. But there are a few that seem apparent this morning and that would be pleasing to you. One of those, Lord, is we pray for the unity of the body of Christ locally at Terra Nova and Troy, that they'd be of one mind in the mission and vision that you've given them and that they would all rally around the ultimate cause of seeing and making Jesus known as better. And very practically, Lord, to do that, sometimes we need things like buildings and spaces that accommodate uh, the needs we have and the vision that you've given us. So we pray for them that you would provide a space that would um, give them uh, complete latitude to be able to uh, enact and implement your vision for their city and for the people that call territory home to grow as better disciples. Lord, for the offer that they put in on the building, if that be your will, throw that door wide open, uh, make it clear that you're calling them to walk through it and make your provision 
um, for that building and space monetarily and otherwise uh, abundantly more than they can even ask or imagine. And uh, Lord, I just pray that in this transition, um, which is going to be extra stressors on the leadership, that you would surface from within the congregation those gifted in the areas of communication and administration and connections and the other ways that will be needed for them to make this transition well and to not lose sight of the ultimate goal, to know you and to make you known, to make more and better disciples, to see Jesus as better and to proclaim that to the world. We pray for these things because we trust and believe that they will ultimately glorify you, bring joy to your people, and be good for the world around them and us. And we ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Hebrews, as you know, and as Tori alluded to, we are synced up. Um, at this point, anyway, sometimes a few months in, we'll get off kilter by a week or two. Uh, so you guys, that is Tara Troy, also have been through Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 4 last week. And so just as a bit of a brief recap that, um, of that, uh, we talked about how the author of Hebrews was presenting our God as a God who speaks. Not necessarily in the audible way you're hearing me right now, at least not as the norm, but he is a God who speaks, and he's done that in many ways and uh, at various times throughout history. And uh, a primary way in which he did that was through the prophets speaking to their fathers. We talked about that last week. And we talked about how Jesus is the culmination, the better way, the superior way in which God has chosen to reveal himself and to speak to his people. There's another way in which God has chosen to speak to his people that Jesus is superior to, and that is through the angels. And actually, it was in a conversation with Tori just a couple days ago. I'll give credit to where it's due, and I'm sure he would pass it along to someone else, but in his own study of this passage, he had this insight that the author of Hebrews wasn't just, it's not that he was randomly turning to angels next to to have another better than for us to compare Jesus to, but that actually he had in view, here is another means in which God has chosen to speak of which Jesus is actually better. And so categorically, the angels are still kind of in this category of being of God speaking in another way he's chosen to speak, and yet Jesus is better. I mention that because um, it, it's just anytime you get little nuggets or insights like that, it just lends to the beauty and the order of God's word, that there's intentionality here, and that's just another way in which we see it. Um, Part of the reason, too, I'll just mention this, uh, that we know that angels are also a means through which God has chosen to speak is the word for angel also means messenger. And actually in Jewish tradition, um, there was the belief that angels were actually the intermediaries, the ones who delivered the law to Moses at Mount Sinai that he then in turn delivered to God's people. And a passage like Deuteronomy 33 verse 2 is the primary uh, text in Jewish tradition that they would actually uh, draw that conclusion from. And so at the end of our time last week in verse 3, we see that uh, after the incarnation, God becoming flesh in the form of the Son, um, and him doing the work of atonement and having completed that, that he sits down. It was a demonstration that his work was done of atonement. It was a demonstration of the fact that he now uh, has returned to his rightful place as heir and as king of the universe. It's, it's a reflection of the fact that Jesus rules his universe even now. And in that context, the author said, he did so, he sat down, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent 
than theirs. And so he sets the stage for where he goes from there, talking about Jesus is better than angels today. Before we actually get into the text itself, let me just say some brief things about angels. We could spend so much more time and probably should in understanding their purpose in God's plans of redemption. But some of the roles that we see that angels have in scripture are as, as I said, messengers. Oftentimes they're seen practically helping God's people. They're deliverers on occasions. They're guides for God's people. They carry out God's judgment on occasion. They are interpreters of the revelation that God has given to man. We also see them have unique privileges that we don't enjoy. For example, Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 talks about how the angels are always, they always see the face of my Father in heaven. They have a rare access to God right now that we don't even yet enjoy. And we also see that when angels appear visibly on the scene, they often appear glorious to those who are beholding them. They are awesome creatures often of which mankind is tempted to either be afraid of or bow down and worship to. These are awesome creatures in the most biblical sense of that word. Getting into the text now. If there was a main idea that the author of Hebrews is trying to impress upon his readers then and God to us now, it's this. He's trying to demonstrate with great force that Jesus is better than these awesome angels. But why? Why was this needed? Why was this strategy employed by the author of Hebrews? Well, what's not likely, what we might assume upon reading this, not having been a part of that culture and time, is he was confronting idolatry. That there was a rampant worship of angels happening at that time in that context. But most scholars and commentators conclude that's probably not the case of what, he, what was happening and what he was trying to accomplish. If it had been so, he probably just would have called it out point blank. You need to repent of this idolatrous worship of angels. He doesn't do that. In a sense, it's, it's almost the opposite. It seems as if the author is seeking to capitalize on his audience's appropriately high view, positive view of these angelic beings and their roles in God's plans of redemption um, to set up what we're going to talk about next week in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So I want to read those verses to you. That's really important. We won't spend a lot of time there today or else Tori and I will have nothing to say next week about it. But it's actually really important to understand where the author is going because everything we are going to talk about today is to set up the punch that he's going to pack next week with the first warning that we come across here in his letter to the Hebrews. So here's what he says. I think it'll be on the screen behind me as well. Hebrews 2, 1 to 4. Therefore... Okay, by the way, whenever you see it, therefore, you always ask what? What is it? Yeah, so cliche, but helpful. It's there for a reason. It's because of what we're going to talk about today. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels, so here we see them as God's messengers, spokespeople, spokesmen, proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience, so where it was not listened to, received a just retribution, a just punishment, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now he's talking about the message proclaimed through the person and work of Jesus the Son. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. In short, in sum, what the author is saying at this point as he enters into chapter 2 of his letter here is, 
he's basically saying, do you remember the punishment that fell upon Israel for not heeding the message that was given to you through the angels? How much more punishment should be expected by those who don't listen to the Son? And that's the whole reason then why he sets up that punch with this great proclamation of Jesus' superiority to the angels today. So how does he do that in verses 5 through 14 of chapter 1? Uh, well, he has this process he employs that um, is known in Jewish literature and in the Bible as a string of pearls, which is like this bombardment of scripture after scripture that's given from the Old Testament to drive home a point. It might almost be like if you have a concordance in your Bible, you open it up to a certain subject, and you basically just read verse after verse after verse in the hearing of an audience to try to drive home the point about that subject. That is what this author is doing, except it's not random. There's a beauty and a structure with which he does it. He actually uses three pairs of Old Testament scriptures in conjunction with each other to build this point. And then he has a final, a seventh verse from Psalm 110, the most commonly quoted uh, psalm in the New Testament to drive home this point. And it might be lost on us, but to the Jewish readers, they would not have missed the fact that this number seven meant something. That even as he's building his case from the Old Testament scriptures about Jesus's superiority to the angels, he does so to show and demonstrate the perfection of that, the superiority of that, because the number seven in Jewish culture meant perfection or completion. Jesus is completely or fully better than these angelic creatures. Now, before we get into these three pairings that I want to kind of break down a little bit with you, um, it's not always easy for us to understand why the New Testament authors will use certain Old Testament texts. Sometimes it can appear to us, they, that, I can't, I don't understand how from the context of the original scripture they arrive at that point. Sometimes it'll even be different wording from what we read in our Old Testament. Um, one of the things we're going to be doing here at Terra Saratoga is we're, we're going to be having a series of what we call Terra Talks, kind of even more living room-like discussions we do downstairs where there's a chance for dialogue and Q&A, where we're going to take some of the more tricky passages and topics from the book of Hebrews and get into those together, where we'll have more time to dissect a question like, how do we understand the New Testament author's use of the Old Testament? So we'll get into that more in our Terra talk. I will give a couple of examples of where he's doing that today and how we can kind of understand the legitimate use of the Old Testament in the point he's making here today. So let's look at this first pair. We find both of these uh, Old Testament quotations in verse 5. But up front, the point that he is making, I'll just tell each time I'm going to tell you up front is this. Jesus is superior to the angels. Why? Because of his unique relationship to the Father as his son. That's the point he's about to make. He uses Psalm 2, verse 7, and 2 Samuel seven fourteen to do it. Before he even cites or quotes those two, he says, to which of the angels did God ever say, and it's a rhetorical question, so the answer is, to none of the angels did God ever say these things. Okay, that's his point. He says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So let's look at each of these two. The first one I want to do in context, I won't do this for all of the different scriptures. Psalm chapter 2 is a psalm about uh, the enthronement of the son. Of course, in that original context, the, the hearers of the psalm would have 
uh, immediately um, understood it to re- refer to the, the kings in Israel. Uh, and it's also, though, about uh, the uh, rebellious nations against God's anointed one. All right, so it starts to bleed over into something more than just earthly kings. Here, here's what it says, starting in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? This is, of course, from God's perspective speaking. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, and then here's our cited verse by the author of Hebrews. The Lord said to me, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. And I'm going to skip to verse 12 because this is where it starts to get really interesting in terms of meaning more than just the earthly king at the time. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. That's a high calling for an earthly king. There is more going on here than meets the eyes in the Old Testament context. Again, the theme of this psalm is addressing the rebellion of the nations against God's anointed one, against this figure, the son. And one of the words here that can cause confusion is this word begotten. What does that mean? When we think of begotten, we might think of all the genealogies where so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. And so we're thinking uh, in a human sense of people coming into existence at that time when they were born. This isn't in reference to Jesus, the son, coming into existence. He was already the son. He, like God, pre-existed creation and is eternal. And the author of Hebrews will make that really clear later on in this passage. The language is instead that of an enthronement ceremony, okay, where the father would publicly declare his relationship to the son as he was crowned. Picture a proud king about ready to pass along his royal kingly role to his son, and he's, he's announcing him and identifying with him, and this is my son, I'm pleased in him, and today we are anointing him as the king. It's not that the son became the son when he became the king. He became the king who was already the son, if that makes sense. That's the meaning here that we have for begotten. Then the author goes on to quote from 2 Samuel 7.14. He says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So before I say context of what was going on there, what do these two verses have in common? Both of them have actually a couple of different words in common. The word I, but that one's probably less significant than the word son. This was a basic rabbinic technique. It was called verbal analogy, where you have two Old Testament passages that use the same word or phrase. The rabbis of antiquity believed you could take those two uh, passages, pull them together, and interpret them one in light of each other. And so that's what the author of Hebrews is doing here with this word son. It wouldn't be altogether dissimilar to the uh, cross-references many of you have in your Bibles. Those cross-references are based upon where you'd find that word or phrase used elsewhere. And personally, I've actually found one of the most beneficial ways for me to study my Bible is in light of those cross-references where you see similar words or phrases or ideas used elsewhere in Scripture. So this was the technique he was employing here to make his point. But the context... In this case, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, was this was Nathan the prophet who had come to David and he was prophesying over him and making this promise that one of David's 
descendants would have an eternal kingdom. And the author of Hebrews believed that Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. In both passages, God is establishing his eternal kingdom through a son. That is what these passages have in common. And so, again, his point up to this point, Jesus is superior to the angels. Why? Because he has a unique relationship to the Father that they do not. He is the Father's son. Something that God never said of any of the angels. That's point number one. He continues on with a second pair in verses 6 and 7. And here's the main idea up front. Jesus is superior to the angels because the lesser will serve and worship the greater. That's the point he's making now. Here's what he says. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So the first quotation the author uses is from either Psalm, or, yeah, Psalm 97, verse 7, or Deuteronomy 32, 43, which is probably where the psalmist was drawing from in the psalm. And yet in that context, Psalm 97, 7, the author says, worship him, all you gods. It doesn't say worship him, all you angels. This is where we get one of those, okay, how did they make that leap to angels? Worship him, all you gods. That's what it says in the original context. Well, there's this Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures known as the Septuagint. That word actually means the 70. Tradition has it that there were 72 Hebrew scholars a couple hundred years before Christ who uh, translated the Hebrew, what we would call Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, into the Greek. And these actually, the New Testament authors actually had a lot of respect for this translation. Many times, the translation you're seeing used when a New Testament author quotes from the Old Testament is the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. This is one of those cases where the translators for the Septuagint actually translated this, worship him, all you angels. This is the translation that the author of Hebrews was drawing from. On top of this, the author of Hebrews believed that the hymn, worship him, applied to Jesus. In Psalm 97.7, it's capital L-O-R-D, Lord, who's actually being referred to. In that immediate context back then, it was Yahweh who was the one that was being commanded that the angels would worship. So this is an example of an Old Testament scripture that had both immediate implications, but also, unbeknownst to that original audience, was pointing to a future fulfillment. And it also says about Jesus something else. It's another beautiful, uh, mysterious presentation of the Trinitarian relationship between God the Father and God the Son, where Jesus is basically likened to Yahweh himself from that Old Testament passage. The, the author's point He's making an argument here from lesser to greater in that the only one that should be worshipped is God himself. And if the angels are worshipping someone else, clearly they are not God. The Old Testament is unashamedly, unabashedly monotheistic. Places like Deuteronomy 6.13 that say there's only one God and only that God is worthy of worship. So if the angels are in fact commanded to worship something else, someone else, this God... Clearly, they are not God. Clearly, they are inferior. This is the point that he's trying to establish. He does it in conjunction with Psalm 104, verse 4. 
He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. Now he's talking about, uh, he's actually saying something that's true about angels, talking about their functionality within God's created order. Here's another example of what we could call a problem. I put that in air quotes because I don't actually believe it's a problem. Psalm 104, in its original context, is talking about God's creation. Um, I'm going to read the first part of that psalm to you just so you get a sense for it. Verse 1, Blessed, bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Here's where it really gets into the creation language. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers flaming fire. There's our verse for today. And he goes on to talk about the earth and rivers and mountains and animals. It's very creation-oriented. It's a psalm all about God's sovereignty over his creation. So how did the author of Hebrews interpret messengers here as angels in our context in Hebrews 1 today? Well, number one, in the Old Testament, according to tradition and rabbinic tradition, winds and lightning are often associated with angels. So that's one thing. We see that in the Old Testament. But secondly, this is where the Septuagint comes in again. The translators of the Septuagint actually inserted angels here. Um, He makes his angels winds and his ministers flaming fire. Why? Because through the eyes of the rabbinic teachers in Israel, they understood that there was connections between these psalms, even the order in which they were placed within the canon of Scripture. And so they saw a close association of Psalm 103 with Psalm 104. Because at the end of Psalm 103, the same two words as is used here for messengers and ministers is used at the, at the end of Psalm 103. Listen to it. And then listen to the context in Psalm 103. Blessed, bless the Lord, O you his angels. That's the word for messengers, same word in the Hebrew. You mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, his ministers, that's the second word, same word in the Hebrew, who do his will. See, these rabbinic teachers believed that the theme at the end of uh, Psalm 103 about angels serving God actually informed our understanding of Psalm 104. And the connection of those two words in Psalm 103 was not coincidence with the connection of the same two words in Psalm 104. I'm just sharing that with you guys so you have a sense that when you come across things confusing like that, like how contextually this doesn't make sense or a different word is used, there are good reasons when we can dig into understanding uh, what God was communicating through his word and even ancient Hebrew tradition of understanding how to to understand God's word. But the author's point is just this. The angels, they are servants of God. And the lesser serves the greater. So clearly, if you're worshiping someone else, you are lesser than the one you're worshiping. Clearly, if you are serving someone else, you are lesser than the one that you are serving. Now, there's an exception to that in a sense, right? One of the things that came to mind for me as I was studying is, but one of the things so radical about Jesus is he actually served those that he came uh, to the earth to die for. So what do we do with that? But even in the context of one of those beautiful passages where he's washing his disciples' feet, here's what he says to his disciples after he's completed that act of love and service. You call me what? Teacher and Lord. 
and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Even there where Jesus is serving those that he came to die for, he is saying the lesser should serve the greater. If I have done this for you, how much more ought you to do this for others? Again, the main idea the author of Hebrews is wanting his audience and us to see, Jesus is superior to the angels because the lesser serves and worships the greater. And then there's this final third pairing of two verses. And his idea here is that Jesus is superior to the angels because of his unique nature as the eternal king of the universe. In verse 8 and 9, we read, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The author of Hebrews is citing from Psalm 45, verses 6 to 7 here. This is just a basic Bible study technique, but when we're trying to understand what he's saying and why he cited this psalm, just look at the language of a king and a kingdom that's used here. Look for common themes and repeated words when you're doing a Bible study. He talks about the throne, a scepter, a kingdom, an anointed one, all language having to do with a king and a kingdom. I want to take a brief aside, though, before we continue digging into these two quotations, just to say, what is it that characterizes Jesus' kingdom, according to this verse? You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. That's the primary characteristic given here of the kingdom of this king. If this characterizes Jesus' kingdom, shouldn't it characterize his citizens too? Not perfectly, but in growing measure. Question for us as pilgrims this morning, do you love righteousness and hate wickedness? And where you struggle with that, do you want to love what is right and hate what is evil? Do you pray that way for God to help your heart to love what is right and to hate what is evil, and not just in the things that are out there in the world, but the things that are in here that are easier to hide and take for granted. Not just the obvious things that we would say, oh, that's so wrong, murder, or whatever it would be, but the things in here, the hate in our heart, the adultery we commit in our heart. Do you want to hate those things? Do you want to love what is right? These are the primary characteristics not only of Jesus and his kingdom, but then, therefore, of those that Jesus is king over. Let us strive to love righteousness and to hate wickedness. The second quote that the author uses in this pairing uh, comes from Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Certainly, the author of Hebrews is talking about the work of the Son as creator. We talked about that last week in verses 1 through 4. But the focus here is actually on the eternality of the Son. He has always existed. Again, this informs our understanding even of that word begotten that was used earlier in this passage. 
In contrast, what he has created has not always existed because he created it. It came into existence at one point. Simply put, that which owes its existence to something else could never be greater than the thing that created it. That is the point that he is trying to make from these two Old Testament quotations. And so, Jesus is superior because of his unique nature as the eternal king of the universe. And that is not the picture that is painted of the angels, no matter how awesome of creatures they may be. The author of Hebrews brings this kind of to a head in verse 13, quoting from Psalm 110, where he kind of bookends this section with what we talked about last week with another depiction of the unique invitation from the Father to the Son to sit at his right hand and rule the universe once again. So we can kind of see the structure come into completion, start to finish here, he's bookending it. And so I want to leave you guys with a couple of thoughts, maybe an application here for you to, to consider this morning. One is theological. There are some more modern representations of Jesus. Uh, the, if you've read the book like the Da Vinci Code or seen that movie in other ways, uh, other, other um, forms of media and teachings where Jesus is believed to have be, um, only later on, around the fourth century AD, been declared as God. That that wasn't really something that the church believed initially, but hundreds of years into the church's existence, they had held councils to decide, oh, maybe we should say that Jesus is God. When you read a passage like we read today, it's just not true. The author of Hebrews couldn't have been clearer than, for example, his citing Psalm 45, 6 to 7 as being about the Son. Again, he said, but of the Son, he says, your throne, who? Oh God, is forever and ever. Therefore, God, your God, both capital G's, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Again, this, I mean, I have to imagine, was that a little bit confusing at the time? Or maybe the Old Testament audience knew something of this idea of the Trinity, that the future Messiah would also be God himself. But it is clear here that even from the time of the author of Hebrews, from the writing of the New Testament, the church and its leaders and its people understood not just that there would be a future Messiah, but that that future Messiah would be God. And that future Messiah and God was Jesus. They understood it. Not 300 years after, but within decades of Jesus' life on earth, this was a clearly established understanding of who the Son was. More practically speaking, the author's point, as I understand it from all of this, is not that his audience was viewing angels too highly. In, in fact, I think what he was doing was leveraging the reader's appropriately high view of the angels to foster worship in Jesus. In other words, if you marvel at the angels, just know that the angels marvel at Jesus. Um, some of you know that I'm a bit of a bandwagon sports fan. Um, I, yeah, I wasn't always that way. I used to, when I was younger, be loyal to certain teams even on their bad years. I just don't have the time for that anymore. So instead, what I've chosen to do is leverage the best athletes and the best teams because I follow greatness now. And I'm not ashamed to say it. So I jumped on the Golden State Warrior bandwagon years ago because I fell in love with Steph Curry and the chemistry of the Golden State offense. and. Years ago, my wife and I started to 
follow Barcelona, not because we cared about Barcelona, but because Lionel Messi played for Barcelona, so you know how thrilled we must be now. Well, that, those of you who knew there was a World Cup last month anyway, because he won. I chose at some point to follow greatness because it helps me actually to worship God. When I see athletic prowess and chemistry for a team or an individual player, I think to myself, and that's just a man. Those are just men and women. They're just, they're created in God's image, but they are a part of his creation. How much greater must God be? And you and I can do that for everything. We can do that for the arts, for, uh, for music. We can, we can do that for being out in creation and seeing what God has made as we hike and we backpack and we ski and do all of these things and use them as a springboard for worship. This is what the author of Hebrews was seeking to do with his audience, with the angels. And in fact, the ancient Jewish belief amongst the teachers in those days was that angels like Michael and Gabriel were only surpassed by God in power and in honor and in authority and creation. Nothing else was more glorious in all of God's creation in their minds than angels. And so the author takes the highest possible beings, ones which the people then, maybe even today, might be, worship, might be tempted to worship. Think of John, who wrote the book of Revelation, and when he was confronted by the angel in the beginning, it fell down prostrate on his face. The angel had to tell him to get up. You shouldn't be worshiping me. He takes the highest possible beings in creation and says they're not even close to the sun. He's trying to reorient their hearts and minds to the one thing that would truly have power to help them in their weakness, in temptation, in the midst of the persecution that they were facing in order to persevere. And that one thing was Jesus. Thomas Chalmers, who was a 19th century minister in Scotland, said, said it this way, the best way to overcome the world is not with morality or self-discipline. Christians overcome the world by seeing the beauty and excellence of Christ. They overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than the world, Christ. This was the goal of the author of Hebrews. And so may God graciously open our eyes to the superiority of the beauty and the glory of Jesus to strengthen you today, no matter what trial it is that you're going through. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that while you are invisible in your spiritual form to us, you have made yourself known, manifest yourself in so many ways through what you have made, through creation. We thank you for the mountains and the ocean. We thank you for how we tremble when we're outside of a shelter during a thunderstorm and lightning. We thank you for the angels. We thank you for how all of these things reflect something about how much greater you are. We thank you for people. We thank you for having made us in your image. We thank you for having made us creators of a kind where we make art and music and we've been given incredible gifts athletically and talent-wise. And, oh, Lord, we thank you for those things, but we pray that you would help us, give us eyes to see those things, not as ends in them themselves, but as means by which we may be ushered into a greater worship of you who is so far superior to anything that you have made. And Lord, that reminds me even too of the great acts of love and service that we have hopefully been recipients of from our fellow man. 
those two were embedded in us as, 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 as reflections of who you are, but in such a dim way as in comparison to your son, whom we now honor and come humbly before and celebrate as we take communion together. And so while we are called to love and lay down our lives, there is no greater one or way in which love took place in this world and a life was given up than when you took on flesh and died for those in rebellion against you for our sins, that we might be forgiven and know eternal life and be able to enter into glorious worship of you and life with you forever. Move in our hearts, Lord, to open our eyes where they are blind to how you are better. You are so much greater than anything that we could give praise to or worship here on earth. We pray for your help in this. We pray for your forgiveness and mercy where we have fallen short in this. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name for his glory, for our joy. Amen.